Hello and welcome to Measure Twice, the podcast for professionals in plastic surgery. I am your host, Mubishir Chima, and I am super excited to bring you this podcast. But first, a disclaimer. This is a professional podcast and only intended for professionals in the field. It presupposes a significant level of knowledge and uses a lot of medical jargon, which makes it unsuitable source of information for general public. Any comments made here do not and cannot replace the evaluation and judgment of your medical professional. Please avoid self-diagnosis by search engines. Welcome back to Measure Twice. In case you noticed, there was no episode in April, well, partly due to Ramadan and then Eid. So lots to catch up on. And let's get ready. At the beginning of the series, we looked at implants for breast surgery, how they are made and some of the issues surrounding them. And rather purposefully, I did not go deep into the clinical details or the controversy surrounding them, of which there are many. Why? Because as you know, there are many opinions and rather than giving you yet another one, why not bring you the opinion of the opinion makers? So this is a paper published in 2023 April in the PRS, Conflict of Interest, that I am one of the authors of this paper alongside Paolo Montemuro and Perheden, aka Perheden from Academic Klinikan in Stockholm. By the way, Academic Klinikan's motto is Skunhet Genome Vertenskap, which is Swedish for the phrase Beauty Through Science, which is the name of the international conference running in Stockholm from the 1st through 3rd of June this year via the website btsstockholm.com. Lots of exciting content in it and a beautiful time of the year to be in Stockholm. Coming back to the paper, it is about identifying what the experts in the field do for their own BA patients. Now, traditionally, we'd send out a questionnaire to the whole membership of an organization. You'd get a 10-15% response and extrapolate from there. Or you'd write an opinion piece with a few friends. For this paper, we approached the opinion makers directly based on certain criteria, including if they had any publications or invited commentaries in the three major plastic surgery journals the PRS, the ASJ, as well as the APS. Were they part of an expert panel or been invited to deliver a lecture internationally? All of these specifically for aesthetic breast surgery. They were then asked if they'd be happy to fill in a detailed questionnaire and then given that questionnaire. Now, all that trouble did mean that we got a 100% response rate. So the respondents mean age was around 57 years and nearly half of them had been in clinical practice for more than 25 years. Broadly, the questionnaire was aimed around four themes. Firstly, about common surgical practices. Second, about the use of more current techniques and technology. Third, specifically about some of the known controversies. And lastly, about their opinion around secondary aesthetic breast surgery. So for the common practices, the most common way to choose an implant was a combination of some biodimensional system combined with either 
uh, virtual sizing via 3D systems or literal sizing with implants in a bra. There are different biodimensional systems but the breast width and pinch thickness are always there. Only 4% exclusively used saline implants, others were silicone only or silicones more than saline implants. Keeping the average implant volume 250 to 300 cc via an IMF incision and most used a combination of implant surfaces. At the time this study was done, this meant that either smooth and motivas or motivas and micro textured. As we spoke earlier, motivas now do call themselves smooth and not textured implants. In respect of newer techniques and technology, nearly two-thirds of respondents were using 3D imaging preoperatively. And you can rest assured that these were not your run-of-the-mill plastic surgeons you are talking here then, if they are using 3D imaging. Vast majority used nipple shields and measures for electrostatic prevention. Implant insertion or Keller funnel was used only by about 40%, while another 40% were completely against it. Personally, I was surprised by this, because I think the funnel makes the implant insertion much easier and much quicker, and decreases the risk of me getting a mallet finger. In the realm of new technologies, use of ADM or mesh for secondary cases had mixed reviews. A quarter would never use it, a third would use either of these depending on the situation and others preferred one or the other as in either they use IDMs only or they use meshes only. And this is before we come to the controversies part. So coming to controversies, how about anatomical implants? Well, about a third of the surgeons use them for majority of their primary BA patients. Another about third of the surgeons use them selectively while a quarter would never use them. Vast majority of the surgeons were happy fat grafting into the breast, but it varied how often they do it for their patients. Regarding BIA ALCL, 11% respondents had had patient in their practice with it. And although two thirds of the surgeons had never not seen or known a patient with BIA ALCL from another colleague, everyone had changed their practice to minimize the risk of this problem. And lastly, but not the least, the theme of secondary surgery. The most common indication was capsular contracture and malposition, as expected. For this secondary surgery, about a quarter of the surgeons usually keep the existing pocket. For about 10 to 11%, the choice depended upon the details of the surgery, but for about two thirds majority, they would usually go for a new pocket. And then some use capsular flaps, ADMs or mesh as their uh, preferred preference was. There were equally varied opinions about the implant choice in secondary surgery, about an equal split in those choosing similar surfaces versus a different implant surface versus those choosing one preferred brand irrespective of what was there previously. So there's a lot to pick into and maybe over the coming months we will go through each of the evidence for this piece by piece. But at least that is the gist of this paper. Since I'm one of the authors, I won't sing its laurels, but I do think that it is as good and as succinct a set of evidence on the subject that we are going to get in a very long time. Now, because it is the opinion of the opinion makers themselves that for primary aesthetic breast augmentation, 
there are areas of broad consensus. But in secondary surgery, even the experts have a variety of opinions. Which brings me back to what I said a few episodes ago, that a BA is never just a BA. There is enough in it to keep us on our toes. There is an Urdu saying which translates roughly as, breathe carefully my friend, because this universe is so finely balanced, you do not want to go wrong with it. Coming to the literature section, in PRS breast section was the paper from MSKCC about using paravertebral blocks for tissue expander breast reconstruction. 471 patients in 2 to 1 ratio assigned to either paravertebral blocks or morphine as post-op analgesia and measured with a 5-point pain scale at days 2 and 10. It was also followed by breast cue physical well-being assessment at multiple points which was better in paravertebral blocks group at 6 weeks post-op. There was no difference in scores otherwise. So a study which failed to demonstrate much difference between the two approaches. But it is from a respectable unit and has some very prominent names in the author's list. So naturally, I wanted to understand a bit more, especially because I was expecting a regional block to perform considerably better. Reading the paper, I couldn't find much details about how the paravertebral blocks were performed other than the fact that it was done. Reading between the lines, I got the suggestion that it was a one-time bolus injection of either bupivacaine or rupivacaine, along with some adjuvant medications, which I'll come to. But first obvious suggestion, if anyone is planning to improve on this study, is to use a catheter, which can deliver the pharmacological agent continuously over several days if need be. Because a bolus defeats the purpose that the duration of the action of the pharmacological agent is only about 6 to 8 hours. But you are expecting differences in pain scores at 10 days. Again, as I said, I couldn't see the word catheter being used, so I'm assuming that it was a bolus of bupivacaine or rupivacaine only. However, a more fundamental objection that I have is why use paravertebral blocks to begin with? If you are doing mastectomy and placing a tissue expander, you literally have the medial pectoral nerve and serratus anterior plane in front of your eyes, begging to be blocked. I understand that due to contamination or infection risk or a concomitant axillary procedure, we may be wary of placing a catheter for medial pectoral nerve, but a serratus anterior fascial plane block is still well worth it if you are concerned about ongoing pain. Both are easily accessible and avoid the risk of blocking the sympathetic chain which you do with the paravertebral blocks. The second aspect is about analgesia other than the paravertebral block. Data has been provided for fentanyl and ketorolac. Fentanyl does come as an injection, transdermal patch or a lozenge, but ketorolac is only an injection. So presumably it was only used while the patient was in hospital. And looks like, again, I'm reading between the lines here, Looks like that fentanyl was only used intraoperatively, while ketorolac was used intraoperative and post-op. Any other analgesia is coated in morphine equivalent units, and I don't know if there was anything other than these two agents used. The only clue as to what this analgesia was comes from the line which says, and I quote, need for adjuvant medication, dexamethasone, clonidine, fentanyl, or valium, was determined by the anesthesiologist." Unquote. 
I mean, I would like to meet the person who thinks Dex, Clonidine or Valium are analgesics. If you can hear my eyes rolling, you're right. Peyton et al. from Texas, 271 women with breast reduction over a four and a half years period, an even split between supromedial or inferior pedicle, mean operative length of around two and a half hours and resection for all of them about 1.2 kg, of which on average 900 grams for supromedial technique and 1.4 kg for inferior pedicle techniques, which is both sides combined of course. There was a 2% hematoma, a post-op, and 12% wounds took more than two weeks to heal, which you might think is a bit high. But I noticed that about 14% of women were ASA grade 3, so I suppose not surprising. But an interesting paper. Good one. In the experimental section is a multi-center paper developing an acellular scaffold for the nipple areola for the porcine model. Basically, they decellularized six of these and implanted subdermally in the back of another porcine model, which had no inflammation until three weeks, which was the study end date. Also tested biocompatibility by seeding human dermal fibroblasts and noted full coverage in two to three days. Certainly a promising study, considering our only options for nipple reconstruction are either local flaps or rarely nipple sharing. Ignoring the potential pricing of such a material if it makes to the market, we definitely need longer data on how this behaves, as acknowledged by the authors themselves. Data for both biocompatibility and for retention of structural support. Cause you have to think about your use case, i.e. will it be just stuck on like a free nipple graft, in which case you need to think about an appropriate dressing that allows recellularization. Or the other use case could it be that it is placed in a subdermal pocket of a flap reconstruction, similar to the porcine model they've demonstrated. But in which case, it has to be structurally strong enough to last long. And these considerations are in addition to any of those about rejection issues. My continuing concern, as you may have noticed from previously, with any acellular stuff is how it gets its blood supply. I can follow the logic in acellular scaffolds for heart or for liver, tissues with plenty of blood supply and where the organ is predominantly made of only one type of cells, which as long as they adhere to each other and to the basement membrane should work. But I struggle to see how recellularization works for complex tissues like kidneys or those less fortunate with a blood supply. For example, a nipple areola complex scaffold in subcutaneous tissue. It probably will allow granulation tissue to infiltrate it simply cause nature dislikes a vacuum. But there is likely to be an upper limit to that too, probably dependent upon the capillary pressure and as it drops over the length of the capillary will determine the successful thickness of our scaffold and whether that scaffold would be made up of epithelial tissue or it would be made of duct epithelium or duct lining. And how is the difference determined? It's probably something that I don't understand well at this stage. Then efficacy of PRP with added fibroblast growth factors from Guangzhou and Guilin in China says that adding fibroblast growth factors improves the benefit of PRP for androgenic alopecia. In a similar vein, the journal issue from 
the month of May has a systematic review and meta-analysis of PRP only for the same condition, describing the benefits of PRP alone. A systematic review and meta-analysis of the risk factors of isolated microtia by a team from Beijing found moderate evidence of several associations other than previous history of malformations. These can be classed as poor maternal health and poor education, for example, maternal diabetes, upper respiratory tract infection, parity more than two, maternal intake of antibiotics, benzodiazepines or NSAIDs, etc. But also low parental educational level and low child birth weight. Unfortunately, all the factors that usually come clustered with poverty and illiteracy. A meta-analysis and systematic review from Taiwan about prognostic factors of margelline ulcers. They found that two-thirds occurred after a burn injury and around 12% after trauma, nearly half in the lower limbs and about 20% in head and neck. Pathologically, 86% of these were SCCs, but 6% of these margelline ulcers were BCCs and less commonly others too. paper from Brown University and Vanderbilt about using alpha-defensine-1 as a biomarker for breast implant-related infection. The paper says that it is a good biomarker with 80% sensitivity and 100% specificity when compared to clinical suspicion of implant infection. So question is, what is a biomarker? A biomarker or a biological marker is an objectively measured characteristic of a biological process. Strictly speaking, even pulse and blood pressure measurements are biomarkers. But in general, when we say biomarkers, we mean some specific chemical in the body that can be measured. As a slightly philosophical point, the main goal of clinical research is to achieve certain clinical endpoints like survival or improvement in function and not necessarily to achieve, for example, a pulse rate of 72. I thought I'd share it because there can be a considerable overlap between the two. Anyways, so biomarkers are kind of secondary endpoints. And in each case, you have to con convince yourself that they are actually relevant to the clinical outcome that we're interested in. So you have a patient with an open low limb fracture and their pulse and blood pressure rate are normal. Are these biomarkers relevant to their clinical outcome? I'll give you a hint. The answer is no. Coming back to this paper, alpha-defensine 1 has previously been shown to be associated with periprosthetic infections. Hence, the authors wanted to see if it was relevant to infections around breast implants. And if this talk about biomarkers rings a faint bell for you, you might recall a company called Theranos, formed in the early 2000s and its CEO, Elizabeth Holmes who achieved considerable attention for claiming to have developed a way to test innumerable biomarkers with only a tiny amount of blood. At some stage, there was conversation of a wearable device or a chip as well, the so-called lab on a chip, but these claims were exaggerated and the whole thing wound down just before COVID. Well, not exactly relevant to the discussion about the alpha-defensine, but I thought you might be interested in some history. Dorfman et al. proposed a classification system for gluteal augmentation surgery. 
and there is a CME article on brachial plexus injuries at birth uh, from Toronto and includes their detailed algorithm, assessment methods, investigations and management strategies. Well worth having a look. Now, I don't usually talk about published letters, but this one caught my eye. Pat McGuire, Caroline Glixman and Roger Wickstrom commenting on Rod Rodick's review of Breast Implant Illness paper published in 2022. These authors give some brief highlights about a study they had conducted and the data seemed to suggest that capsulectomy can improve the reported symptoms at six months. However, they do mention that the improvement does not appear to correlate to the type of capsule procedure, i.e. whether it is a total capsulectomy, partial capsulectomy, or what sounds like a capsulotomy to me. The patient symptoms improve. Their one-year follow-up data is being analyzed and in the meantime, I'll let you draw your own conclusions. Last, but certainly not the least, in the month of May's PRS is the editorial about OpenAI and ChatGPT. Well, what conversation would be incomplete these days without the two? This editorial gives you a non-technical overview of what ChatGPT is, its uses and its limitations. Of note is the last paragraph or so dedicated to discouraging authors from using ChatGPT or any other AI tool for scientific writing and that their use should not be encouraged and these tools should not be credited as authors because among other things and they say authors are personally liable for any mistakes the ethics of any such use is not clearly defined and that multiple publish publishers and journals have agreed that such AI does not meet the legal requirement of an author. I respect the author's view that it makes sense to have trepidation when a technology is as nascent as ChatGPT was when this editorial was planned for publication, which appears to be January-February 2023, barely two months after ChatGPT was released. But I'm sorry, this view cannot be held for long, certainly not forever. To me, it sounds like arguing that Siri or Alexa or Cortana cannot turn on your living room lights or open your garage door or send an email auto reply because there is no ethical basis for that. I'm glossing over some details, but stay with me. The technological advancements are coming fast, like it or not. That may be difficult to explain to current publishers of scientific literature who have been following an archaic model of either charging the readers through the nose for publishing someone else's life work or more recently, charging the authors for the privilege of doing so. And I have a lot more to say on the topic. While ChatGPT or its equivalent may look or feel like an ethical challenge or a legal inconvenience in May 2023, their successors in the not so distant future will be faster, more precise and more personal. If a language able is, more, is able to extrapolate or interpolate existing knowledge or scientific literature produced by a person and the person reads it over and agrees that yes, this is the meaning I needed to convey, then where is the problem? Yes, there will need to be some checks and balances and transparency, but more of a reason to get on with it. Now, sampling through Aesthetic Surgery Journal, Nodler et al. went over 12 years of aesthetic surgery carried out in various academic institutions in the US. For a total of 4,700 patients or so, they analyzed that the outcomes in terms of complications is no worse in academic institutions. Well, why is that important? Because 
you can now rest assured that despite being teaching institutions and all that what goes with it, the patient is not worse off in any way. The complications, when they happen, were associated with factors that you'd expect. Increasing age, obesity, smoking, systemic diseases. So good review overall. Zhang et al. from Hangzhou, China, looked at nine patients with vision loss after hyaluronic acid fillers. You know, it is rare, but a known and devastating complication. These nine patients all had HA fillers anything from 0.2 to 2.0 ml, and mostly in and around the glabella or nose. The patients presented between half an hour to nearly 24 hours after the injection, and initial clinical de deficit ranged from blurred vision, visual field defect, to blindness. Now, the exact degree of blindness at that stage has not been characterized, but you can imagine in an emergency situation that may not be exactly possible. And the injury occurred both in cases where a cannula was used versus as well as where a needle was used, which I found was a bit surprising. There are quite a few details of the patient's symptoms during the two to six years of follow-up. With nine patients, it is easy to read too much into it. But the specific branch of thalamic artery affected was identified in each case, and in some, selective thrombolysis was attempted. Full vision recovery was not achieved in any, but some patients retained a small amount of retinal function. At best, this was blurred vision, but for others, it was light perception, hand movement, visual field effect, or complete blindness. Even though re-imaging showed recanalization of some vessels in the retina and that there wasn't that much necrosis, but still visual equity did not return as well as someone would have wanted to from the direct observations of the retina. Lee et al. discussed the use of ultrasound to assess lower phase to target botulinum toxin injections into the masseter. Lobato et al. discussed autologous fat grafting for chin augmentation and wanted to know if a smartphone-based app can determine how much volume has been added. They used CT scan as a standard to compare against, and yes, it took a while to adjust all the pictures taken from the smartphone app to align them with the CT picture, but it was accurate as compared to the CT scan. And last but not the least in ASJ is Aslani et al.'s paper describing fluid balance changes after liposuction and tumescent infiltration. Interestingly, they don't use lidocaine in the solution, but instead give analgesia by intrathecal injections. It is a single surgeon experience. 30 patients underwent circumferential lipo and an average infiltration volume of 4 liters and aspiration using microair. There are details of patient's fluid balance in the paper, but the other main finding that I'd want to highlight is the 2 grams per deciliter drop in hemoglobin noted postoperatively. Of course, that is dilutional, and that would explain why the liposuction patients feel so knackered in the days afterwards. And of course, we always warn our patient about that.